and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. <laughs> <laughs> he was completely silent the entire time we were talking before the show recorded. Naturally. And then literally the second you start the introduction. <laughs> he knows when there's a hot mic. Apparently. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tkumloops-Tay territory within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmakulu. And today's text, Saved by the Bell, ah, Saved by the Bell, sorry, <laughs> is set in Pacific Palisades, which is the traditional territory of the Chumash, Tongva, and Keech peoples. Yeah. So, Brenna, this is a new year. It is officially 2021. Oh, thank goodness. Wow. You know, Joe, when the ball dropped on New Year's Eve all those many days ago that it definitely happened. Right. We're definitely not recording this in advance. Absolutely it's definitely not. definitely still not 2020. And I felt this palpable sense of relief. So you said, oh, we should revisit a text from the 80s. <laughs> you gotta admit, this was great. This was a lot of fun, yeah. yes. <laughs> I will confess that it's very much on the same wavelength as something like Julie and the Phantoms, yeah. where it's kind of not good, but it's also exactly yeah. what I needed, and it's yeah. actually quite a bit smarter than I anticipated going in. I really love, I mean, we'll talk about each other's, I guess, context for the show in a second, but I think what I love the best about it is the way it straddles the line of being its own thing with its mm -hmm. own characters who have to exist in this world that is really stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Like we have these characters who are effectively normal teenagers having normal teenage experiences and they are parachuted into a completely incoherent space of privilege. Mm -hmm. I think they do a fantastic job there. And we'll have to talk about the fan service because I really liked it, but I wondered how non-contextual would feel for someone who didn't have any history so but yeah i'm excited to talk about it i really enjoyed it made me laugh made me laugh a lot yeah yeah, yeah. so uh in case folks don't know this was created by what i've gathered is the original creator sam babrick he tragically passed away last year at the age of 87 but he was involved in i think all of the previous iterations so he gets a creator credit on this but the show is principally run by tracy wigfield and brenna i think one of the reasons that you and i both gravitate to this is because she has worked on shows like new girl oh. mindy project oh. and great news oh okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> to which I'm like, oh, this makes perfect sense. It's like, it's smart, it's savvy, it's feminist, it's contemporary, it's political, but still very accessible and funny. And willing to be totally silly in the service of a larger argument. Because ultimately, mm -hmm. like, this whole show is like a really good satire of white privilege. Oh my, I mean... I kind of can't believe how class-oriented yes. this TV show is, which is also hysterical because it's also super privilege -y. Yes! Yes. 
Although I will say one of the things that I struggled with is that I don't find that the people of color characters are as interesting as their white counterparts. Well, the problem is that in creating this complete satire of wealth, the white characters are all outlandishly oversized and they take up a lot of the emotional real estate of the series yeah so i guess maybe we should back this truck up one brief moment the very basic logline for the show is that it is set in the same universe as all of the previous iterations of saved by the bell except the new class the new class never happened in this iteration okay i don't know what that means i'll tell you about it in a second Mm mm-hmm but basically what happens in the show is that there is a underfunded school called Douglas and it is shut down in the first few minutes by now governor. <laughs> oh, geez. What is his name? Zach, Zach Morris. Zach Morris. Now Governor yes. Zach Morris, who could not be a more explicit cipher for Trump if they tried. <laughs> really? Yeah. I just kind of found him to be a farce of well-meaning but completely clueless celebrity politicians. Like, I could have seen him as a stand-in for Arnold as well. I guess so. I think it's the the way in which he is explicitly out of his depth in every situation he encounters. And the Mm -hmm. way he just takes whatever reasonable-ish sounding suggestion is shouted from the crowd and makes it his policy. Kind of enjoyed that. Can't lie. And that is where the story begins, of course, because he doesn't know how to balance the books. So so when they find out that education is being underfunded, but they have no money, what they end up doing is closing a bunch of schools, which means that, of course, these poor students from Douglas, who are principally people of color, are then shipped over to Pacific Palisades to hang out at Bayside High with all of their rich, privileged, entitled white counterparts. Yes. And hilarity ensues. Yeah. So (laughs) I will say one of the things that is going to be a big hurdle is that the pilot is not great. No, it's not. It's not terrible, but I could see people sampling this if they liked Saved by the Bell and looking at this and being like, it's not quite doing it for me. It's quite preachy and very fish out of water. And it is still, I think, representative of what you get with the remaining nine episodes, but it's just not the best episode, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I will say when I got into episode two, and then on, it was actually quite easy to be like, yeah, I'm just going to watch the next episode immediately. Yes, definitely. I think that the pilot is doing that thing that reboots often try to do, which is orient you to the whereabouts of all the former characters who are going to be relevant in the show and set up what is a completely outlandish premise and make you care about the new characters who are Mm -hmm. joining and it's just like it's just too much for 25 minutes and as a result it does kind of none of those things very well Mm -hmm. and everybody is doing this weird there's like a lot of overacting in the original cast right I can't tell if it's purposeful or if they were just never good actors to begin with, or both. 
I struggled with that as well. Because <laughs> there's there's one episode in particular, and I'm, I feel like we're probably going to unpack it in a bit more length, but episode eight is almost explicitly dedicated to the adults it's at the a kind worst of high episode. school reunion. It's awful. Yeah. And part of it, I think, is that when it's just the adults, you recognize how bad the overacting is. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just what they're all kind of capable of. But it really reinforced just how much I appreciated the younger cast yes. members. Like, they are much more adept at reading the room and knowing how to balance the tone. Yes, it's interesting to me because it reminded me of when we talked about Degrassi and how bored you got when you got forced to watch episodes that were about the original Degrassi mm-hmm. cast mm-hmm. in the new generation because you were yeah. like, I don't care about these people. And like, yeah. they're boring and I just want to hear about what's going on with the kids. Mm-hmm. And that was very much the vibe here. And even though I have all the context and really loved the original Saved by the Bell, I didn't want to watch episode eight either. Like, right. <laughs> I didn't You're care. Just like, I don't care about these people as much. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a shame because some of the fan service that happens in that episode is some of my favorite of the whole series. But there's too much of it in one episode and combined yes. with the occasionally like unwatchable set chewing of the original cast. Mm. Episode eight is not good. No, not at all. <laughs> it's worse than the pilot. I will agree. Yeah, yeah, I think it's the worst episode of the series. Yeah. Okay, so how do you want to go about this? You had mentioned maybe we should reiterate our relationship with the series. Yes, let's do that. Okay, so mine is easy. I know of the show. You're going to see that I struggle with the names of the original cast members, but I really didn't watch anything except for, you know, clip packages. So I know the Jesse Spano, I'm so excited, I'm so excited, I'm so scared bit. Oh, the callback to that is great in the series. Yeah, the callback is great. Yeah. But apart from that, I just knew that it was neon colors. It was ridiculous shenanigans in a very sitcom-y kind of vein. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's really my context. So I have watched every single episode of Saved by the Bell probably multiple times. Mm -hmm. It was on at four o'clock after school. I watched all of Saved by the Bell. I watched all of Saved by the Bell, the college years. I watched the mini season where they save the beach club. I watched when they went to Hawaii. I saw the wedding episode. I even watched the new class, which the new class was supposed to be a continuation of the original series. It had both Dustin Diamond and Dennis Haskins in it, who plays Screech and Mr. Belding. And we should note that they are the only two original actors who we never see in this iteration. Yeah, I think there's some issues with Dustin Diamond in real life that would have got him uninvited back. Yes, yes. He spent much of the years after Saved by the Bell trying to cash into the series in different ways and ways that offended many of the original cast members. And as a Mm. result, now that they've cashed in again, he wasn't invited to the party. (laughs) Sorry, sir. You've already tried to do this one too many times. Yes, exactly. So the new class was on in the late 90s, I guess. And it was a series where Dustin Diamond returns to Saved by the Bell as a teacher. And Dennis Haskins is still the principal. It's really Save Stuff Different Day kind of thing. It doesn't do anything like this series where it's trying to sort of reinvent or satirize the social order or anything. It's really just a straightforward continuation. And I think in this version, the reason Screech can't be in this series is because he's in space. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that there was just an effort to basically erase any of Dustin Diamond's 
or really Dennis Haskins' contributions to the series at all. Right. And basically paper over the existence of that new class series. And yet I find that doesn't matter to somebody no. who doesn't have any experience Why with the series. To be honest, it doesn't matter to people who do, I don't think, because <laughs> the problem of Dustin Diamond in the Saved by the Bell universe, like, is he a compelling character? Is Screech a compelling character? Does anybody like him? Like, he didn't anchor the new class particularly well because he doesn't have the same charisma as the other actors, even when they're at their worst. Okay. So I don't think the new class was particularly beloved by any stretch of the imagination. I just think it's kind of interesting gossip that it's left out. Right. Okay. So I'm curious, what do you think was the appeal of the show? And then why would it be brought back? It was part of a late 80s, early 90s teen sitcoms that aired on Saturday mornings, right? So it was a way to kind of capture the cartoon crowd as they aged out of cartoons. I'm I'm, Mm. I'm assuming, like, marketing-wise, that was the purpose. Right. There were a lot of these shows when we were growing up, and I can't remember any of them in any detail, but I watched (laughs) them all. There was, I remember Hang Time was one about a basketball team that I watched. Okay. There was definitely a large number of Canadian series in this vein. Okay. Yeah, I will confess, and it's principally with the opening credits, which gets a revamp here. Yeah. But I think samples the original for episode eight, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, I think so. It's, I mean, it's just a re-recording of the original song. Right. But yeah. it reminded me so much of Degrassi. Wake up in the morning, gotta shake the feeling. And I couldn't help but feel that this was one of those things where it's like Degrassi is the forefather and then Saved by the Bell kind of picks up the message oriented after school special kind of vibe, but does it in a more sensational fashion. We definitely have, I think, if we're speaking iteratively, we have Saved by the Bell as like the stepping stone in terms of... (laughs) I don't know, storytelling capacity between mm-hmm. something like Degrassi and something like 90210, right? Okay. So with Saved by the Bell, we get a lot of gloss. We get a lot of privilege and prestige, right? So all the actors are extremely beautiful. Mm-hmm. The sets are incredible. They spend all their time on the beaches of Malibu. <laughs> Naturally. Naturally. like So it's got all the gloss and stuff that Degrassi doesn't have. I think the big problem with Saved by the Bell from a storytelling perspective is that it's profoundly episodic. (laughs) Okay, yeah, that's what I was trying to figure out because I was surprised at how serialized this new iteration is. Yes, but I think it's because, like, does anybody want to watch episodic television anymore? Unless it's a procedural on CBS, probably not. Right? Like, that seems to be the only space where we're still willing to have everything wrapped up and not have to carry forward narrative from episode to episode. And I think it has to do with the fact that we all binge everything. Yeah, it's a lot in part due to streamers, which of course, if people are watching this in the US, then you're watching this on Peacock, which Mm -hmm. is NBC's streaming platform. And they're trying to make some moves in this market. But really, I mean, when you dump a series online, people don't want to watch an episode that doesn't speak to the others because they're watching them in batches, like you said. Yeah, if you ever try to watch like old school episodic television as a binge, yeah, sometimes it's comforting, but you're expecting the narrative to build in a way that there was a period of time where it just 
didn't. Like, yeah, it, it, you were coming back for the characters, but not yeah. because anything in their lives was continuing. It was just like, I like these people. I want to see a new adventure with them. Yeah, if you want to think of a really clear example of the difference, like think about an old Archie comic versus a season of Riverdale, right? Right, right, right. There's right. no consequences in the world of Archie comics. There's nothing but consequences in the world of Riverdale. Right, yeah. And you can't really have sustained consequence in episodic television. And that's really the weakness of Saved by the Bell in comparison with something like Degrassi is that everything is going to have to be wrapped up in 22 minutes. And we're not ever going to come back to this particular problem lest we be seen as repetitive. So, yeah, it has a vibe to me of Degrassi, but less effectual, basically. Right. Yeah. So I'm curious then, why do you think that this has come back? Because I'm looking at this from a very cynical kind of, oh, this is an existing IP that we probably Mm -hmm. had access to. But was anyone screaming out for this? I kind of feel like people weren't super enthused when they announced that it was happening. And it wasn't until people actually started to review it and the reviews were quite a bit kinder and more supportive than people realized that people maybe started to get on board. I think that we frequently misunderstand how nostalgia functions. Okay. So I think when people were originally talking about a reboot of the show, if you're imagining a return to episodic teens sitcom Saturday morning sort of television, like that era has passed. Right. Nobody wants to go back to it. (laughs) Nobody wants to go back to it. Yeah. We're A, not clamoring for episodic at all. But I mean, really, the audience for Saved by the Bell is preteens imagining themselves into high school, right? Mm -hmm. That's the audience. It's not really a show for high school students. No. There's nothing to it, right? It's a show for when you're 11 and your older sibling is doing cool stuff and you are stuck at home on Saturday morning and you feel like too much of a little kid if you watch cartoons, so you watch Saved by the Bell. Like, Right. That's That's what I'm going to aspire to be. I'm going to be a Slater. I'm going to be a Jesse Spano. Exactly. So that's the very much the context. And I think, I think cynical TV executives think that any form of nostalgia will sell. And I'm guessing that, you know, say by the Bell would cost very little to redeploy. And that's attractive when you're looking to populate your streamer content. Right, which Peacock is kind of desperate to do, right? Like they are trying to combat heavy hitters, but they don't have the deep bench in right. the same regard that HBO Max or Netflix or Amazon Prime has. So this is a way of saying like, Hey, millennials. (laughs) We see you. We see you. We know you're super nostalgic for your Give us your dollars. Why this show works is because Tracy Wigfield's more savvy than that, right? So it's like she's taken the appeal to the execs of an already extant property, and she's turning it into something far more interesting, almost in spite of itself. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so maybe let's walk through some of these characters. So we've got two de facto leads, Daisy Jimenez, and she is played by Scary Velasquez. And then we've got Mac Morris, who is, of course, the son of original cast member Zach Morris. And Kelly Kapowski. Sure. I'm assuming that's the Tiffany Amber Thiessen. Yeah, it's Zach's high school sweetheart, so. Right. (laughs) And of course, he is styled to look exactly like Zach. And I think that Mitchell Hoog is kind of the secret standout to me. It's him and Josie Toda as Lexi, who are the most outlandish and ridiculous characters. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got the usual idiot savant gentle football player in Jamie Spano, who is, of course, Jesse's 
son. Mm -hmm. He is played by Belmont Camelli. And all of these kids, I think, are good, as you said, because they get to occupy the most space and they get to be the most ridiculous because they're just living in their wealth and privilege. Mm -hmm. So then we also have Aisha and Devante, played by Alicia Pasquale-Pena and Dexter Darden. I really like Devante, and I felt like he was wildly underused. Oh, interesting, because I actually think he's the worst character on the show. <laughs> Sounds about right. But also because of the same reason that you just elucidated. Yeah. Like, he's not even friends with Daisy and Aisha. No. So... Half the time you're just like, why is he in here? Because it feels like the show is already too top-heavy with characters. Because we've got six of these youngsters, mm -hmm. plus Principal Toddman, who is played by John Michael Higgins. Who's great. I love him. Who's mostly good, but then sometimes gets frustratingly annoying. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But he just, I don't know. For the longest time, I didn't know what Christopher Guest looked like. So I just assumed he looked like John Michael Higgins. And <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of residual affection. Yeah. <laughs> no, I do too. I mean, I've loved him in the Pitch Perfect movies and all the Christopher Guest movies. He's a great comedic talent. I just feel that there was a lot of stuff that's so silly that mm. even he can't quite salvage it. Mm -hmm. But that's fair. I will say that I think he's better than Elizabeth Berkeley <laughs> and Mario Lopez reprising their original characters. They're all okay. Like, all of the adults, I think, are okay. I think the kids are all pretty good, but some of them just get more interesting things to do. Like, I really, really felt bad for Hiskiri Velasquez, because Daisy just keeps having to play the moral center yes. who's trying not to be compromised. And we talked about boring protagonist syndrome when we talked about the outsiders, and I was like, oh my god, Daisy. Every time she got a plot line, I just... It's a danger that the show falls into is by satirizing the life of privilege that the characters like Mac and Lexi and Jamie live. And as a result, it forces Daisy, Aisha, and Devante to literally always play the moral center in every episode. And yep. so it strips away a fair amount of complexity from their characters. One of the reasons why I like Devante and feel like he's underused is because the series almost almost mm -hmm. has a conversation about what it means to particularly be a young black man in the space of Bayside High right. and the assumptions that people make about him when actually he really just wants to pursue musical theater. Mm -hmm. And every time they actually sort of get to dance into those storylines, I think they're stronger because Devante has some real complexity in his character, whereas someone like Daisy is forced to just always be the one who makes the good choice in contrast to Mac and Lexi in particular. Yeah, so looking at something like episode six, Teen Line, which is when Devante debuts his theater performance. <laughs> I don't even know what this production is supposed to be. It's terrible looking. It looks awful. <laughs> but it ends up becoming a treatise on racism, right? Mm -hmm. Because the theater critic gives him a bad review. There's an incident that involves like no physical activity and Devante is suddenly threatened with expulsion. Mm -hmm. And I liked how seriously the series treated it while simultaneously not losing sight of the fact that it was still a teen comedy show. Mm -hmm. So the implication is very serious for Devante and him not wanting to fight this battle because he and his grandmother have been through this before while simultaneously 
we've got Mac becoming a payphone and mm-hmm. the entire student body descending into <laughs> feral animals because their cell phones have been taken away. I do love the send up of venture capital culture here, mm-hmm. by the way, where Mac basically, yeah, Mac believes he's invented something when really he's recreating this the, the payphone. An outdated technology. Yeah. Yes. And he's absolutely <laughs> convinced that he's like invented it. It's really good. Yeah. And I actually felt like that was a really good use of Daisy where she's trying to be a moral crusader for part of the episode, but then the other half of the episode, she's just exasperated with Mac because he is acting like a Looney Tunes character hiding out (laughs) in a closet. They do need to figure out something to do with Daisy other than have her just point out the absurdities of the Bayside characters. Mm -hmm. It's frequently the only thing they can think of for her to do while they let the Bayside characters run ragged i'm talking about in particular the one where mac and jamie have a crush on the same girl right and daisy over and over and over again is like it's obviously the same girl and everybody's like yeah whatever just let it go and i really just want them to figure out more to do with her because she's good and she's she's compelling and she's charming like there's no reason why she couldn't have more interesting plot lines than yeah, every time she did the time out and then she broke the fourth wall to yeah. tell us something completely obvious, I gritted my teeth. And I really, I hope that it was one of those things where it was in the first episode and then they figured it out and that it was not working. Yeah. But it doesn't. It continues all the it way does. through the series. Honestly, it's probably the worst thing about the show apart from episode eight. <laughs> so it's a callback to that was sort of Zack's power in the original series. Okay, see, I didn't know that. Yeah, Zach can stop time by, yeah, he makes the tea and he goes, time out, and then he explains to you exactly what's clearly obvious to everybody in the room. And I think the intention is good, because the intention is trying to say to us as the viewer, okay, previously, Zach was your character. Zach was the person who you were following through this world, but we are pivoting, and now you are following Daisy. Mm -hmm. But... I think the show doesn't always know what it wants to do with its own cheese. And the episodes where... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, that statement is gold. (laughs) The episode where it lets it get out of control at the worst is episode eight. But there are frequently these moments where you're like, I don't think anybody here understood why that did work in the previous iteration and Mm. therefore doesn't work now. Right. It's one of the ways that the show feels dated, even though it's a show from 2020. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, who's she talking to? There's no live audience, right? Like, the joke is that there's a fake live audience in the original series, and Zach is turning to them and saying, blah, 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 right? But there's no live audience. Yeah. So See, not knowing that, I interpreted it as, like, it felt like a new slash inferior version of a voiceover, which yeah. is, like, a very commonplace in YA, as we know. Yeah. But... I think part of it was just it felt so instantly outdated and very forced and a little too hammy, but mm-hmm. also very unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Whereas something like episode seven, House Party, where they use Daisy to do a send up of Euphoria, which having only just recently watched, I loved that joke. And you probably didn't get it at all. Did not get it at all. <laughs> yeah, so Daisy gets inebriated before they go to a party at the Spanos, and she basically spends the episode living like she's in Euphoria, which is basically high and bright colors, and all of these amazing things are happening. And then the rest of the characters are just witnessing her being a drunken fool. 
Yes. My favorite is when she thinks she's making it with a hot boy, but she's making it with a fur coat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so good. That's a funny thing because it makes fun of the character's rigidness. Mm-hmm. While still giving her something to do. But I also think it's telling that that's an episode that's not very Daisy-centric. Like, when she gets the lead status, as she does in the back three episodes, when she really goes on the war horse and she tries to stage a walkout because the Douglas students are going to be sent back to Douglas, there was a lot of, like, oh, no, okay, we're back to this, I guess. My favorite moment, though, of the whole series is the very end of episode 10. The kids are all like, well, I'm glad this is all settled. From now on, we'll just be carefree and easygoing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Zach's like, huh, there's this thing called the coronavirus. Anyway, and then they all drink milkshakes, like they share straws. It's just yeah. such a good moment. I also love that you just called him Zach. Oh, <laughs> what's his Clearly oh, right, the character Mac. is so interchangeable with his father. The haircut is even the same. It's kind of amazing. Oh, it's fantastic. Like, yeah. those are the kinds of things where I was like, oh, this is obviously the callback. Yeah. Didn't need to know much about Zach Morris to know that Mac Morris is obviously a chip off the old block. Like, there's a lot of that kind of fan service stuff in the series. Like, did you want to talk about the I'm so excited, I'm so excited, I'm so scared <laughs> recurring bit? <laughs> that moment is really good in particular. No, I just want to talk about what it was like for you as a viewer. You know, there's a lot of moments, for example, where Slater will reference something that happened in high school and. Mm-hmm. Every single one of those references is an episode. Right. But I'm wondering how those references fall when you don't have the context at all. Does it just seem pointless? Does it seem like empty nostalgia? Um, A little from column A and a little from column B. Like, I knew that he was obviously referencing something real. Obviously, in episode eight, that's more apparent because they're all sharing what are clearly meant to be significant moments from the original show or, mm-hmm. or other iterations. But he has an exchange where he apologizes to Jesse for telling her to calm down, mama, calm down, calm down, mama. And I was like, oh, I don't understand why she's getting upset and he's having to apologize. And then when he spells it out, you're like, oh, okay. so this is clearly for people like me who don't have that context. Yeah. But it was clear enough that that had been something that they had done. So I didn't understand the nuance of it, but I clearly Mm. understood what they were trying to do. Okay, I was just curious about that. Yeah, it doesn't land quite as strongly because I can't immediately envision Mm. what he's referencing. Whereas you were probably like, oh, yeah, I remember that episode. Yeah. Because it seemed like they were drawing from big things like memorable moments that people would be able to immediately identify if you were a fan of the show. Some of the references are pretty esoteric, too. Like there's one point where he mentions this other guy who Jesse briefly dated, for example, and I hadn't even remembered that was a character. So there's definitely some more minor examples too i think it's a show that is very interested in rewarding people who have stuck through so many different iterations of the series interesting yeah okay cool yeah because yeah, I, I mean i think as a standalone this works fine like yeah. you can clearly get that they're leaning on to nostalgic like whenever they go to that dinery restaurant the and it looks like it's still from the 80s with the neon colors and the weird geographical forms it's all good because you're like okay i get it you're playing on nostalgia you're playing on 80s culture and you're having a laugh at it i love the part when i think it was kelly goes or no it was, it was jesse goes do you remember how casey Kasem had like all of his dance parties here for some reason and it's true mm-hmm. there were all these episodes of say by the bell where casey Kasem was like the dj at their dances and stuff and i always right. remember even as a kid i was like 
I listen to this guy on the radio. Like, why, is why he would he school? be here? <laughs> yeah. Which is funny, right? Because I always feel like that kind of stuff is a throwback to Beach Blanket Bingo movies from the 60s with like Annette Fonicello. Yeah. Well, I think it is. I think it's all of adult imagining of teen reference. Mm-hmm. When really what I think Beach Blanket films as well, they were less for teens and more for nostalgic and or adults who felt like they had already peaked yeah (laughs) and also preteens i think these cultural artifacts are very much we think of them as being teen culture but they're as much about aspirations to teendom as they are anything else right what actual 17 year old is watching saved by the bell brenna notwithstanding (laughs) yeah brenna's not a brenna's (laughs) not a good proxy for for real teens no no Absolutely not. It is funny that you say that, though, because so much of the series seems steeped in they're playing with broad strokes, but Mm -hmm. clearly it's also evoking a kind of this is what high school is. So it's stuff about football. It's stuff Mm -hmm. about dances. It's stuff about parties. I think there's maybe, what, one or two scenes that actually take place in a classroom? Yeah. I will say one of my favorite early jokes is when... Mac doesn't want to do the book report, so he gets the PTA to ban Frankenstein. Yes. (laughs) Which is like a a nice recurring bit because it also sets up the fact that the PTA will become a problem with interference in the school later on in the series. My favorite classroom gag is that Patrick Thomas Bryan is still the math teacher. He was the math teacher in 1989, but he's still the math teacher now. Yeah. Okay. That that flew right over my head because I didn't have it. (laughs) So good. Okay, well, any other kind of standout things that you want to talk about in Saved by the Bell? No, I just think it's worth just curling up and binging. Honestly, it's fun and it's, I don't think it's hurting anybody. And that's just nice right now. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. I don't think this show does any harm, Joe. And God, what a relief. Right. What a great way to start. Yes, we're talking about Twilight next week. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I do just want to give a quick shout out to Josie Tota, who I had seen previously in some other stuff, but I had not realized that she had formally transitioned and come out. So she plays Lexi, and it's very, very understatedly dropped that she is a trans woman Mm -hmm. in the first episode, to the extent that I actually thought I had misheard it, and then it becomes a fun plot line not in the way that they actually ever have to say, oh, well, she's trans and she can't fall in love with Jesse and so on. That never comes up. It's nope. just more that there's a moment where she and Devante realize that he has insulted her by calling her weird and an outsider. And they talk about how she used to be really mean and now she's not. And part of that is her empathy for the Douglas students. But to me, as a queer viewer, I also took it to be that when she accepted who she was, she suddenly also became a nicer person because Mm -hmm. she didn't hate things and hate herself. Do you want to know something cool about Josie Toda's contributions to the show? Absolutely. Tell me. When she was cast, Wakefield told her that the character would be trans, that she could be openly trans within the role. And Josie Toda said, that's cool, but how many trans writers and producers do you have? (gasps) And Wakefield said, um, uh, zero. And so Josie Toda negotiated to have a producing credit on the show and to have a voice in the writer's room. Wow. Okay. Folks, this is how it's done. Super rad. Yeah. No, and I, I mean, honestly, I just, 
I love that character as well because mm-hmm. she's a bit of a bitch, but yeah. she's also kind of super fun. And she also might be the only character who has anything like an arc of growth over the course of these 10 episodes. Yeah, everybody gets a little mini arc in a couple of episodes, but they don't really budge too much from where they began. Mm-hmm. It's probably her and Devante, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. And the gag of her acquiring empathy because the mm-hmm. Douglas kids moved to her school. Like, it's funny, but it also, she and Devante share this more meaningful transition over the course of the series that I really liked. I would like to see their relationship actually developed more mm-hmm. in future iterations of the show. Yeah, unfortunately, I think we're just going to get a romantic relationship with Jamie. Although, honestly, as somebody who thought that they were going to keep her sexless, I was super impressed that the series basically ends on a cliffhanger with her starting a relationship with Jamie. And also a character like Mac not having a girlfriend or dating women seemingly at any point in this season. Yeah, we find out that he finds a couple of girls hot. Mm -hmm. And we definitely have this great moment between him and Josie. uh, Sorry, him and Lexi's character. Or Josie's character, Lexi. But there's this moment where she says like, hey, something, something. And he's like, oh, what, you have a crush on me? And she's like, no, but you know, anytime, anywhere. And they have like this little cute, like, yes, I don't know. It's just so, it's so effortless. It's so off the cuff. It's so not a special moment Mm -hmm. that it's such a special moment. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I think that's actually one of the things the series does really well Mm -hmm. is that it does have these incredibly progressive, very forward thinking moments, but they're not hit you over the head obvious. It's like, that was a moment If it landed for you, then fantastic, but we're already moving on. Yeah, I think that is one way in which this show perhaps embodies 2020 teen culture better than some of the other stuff that we've looked at, which Mm -hmm. is that I think the gender is just so much less of an issue for Gen Z coming up than it was for us. (laughs) It's just funny because this felt both incredibly progressive, but also effortless. Like I think you even said that. Yeah. In a way that we've seen other shows, like I'm thinking of Love, Victor, Mm -hmm. really struggle with like, oh, we're trying to be woke and progressive. And it felt like, oh, this is adults trying to speak the language of teenagers. And it does feel like Saved by the Bell has its finger on the pulse a little bit more realistically. Which is insane to say, considering (laughs) what this show is delivering. That was a wild sentence, but I think it's true. I think that ultimately, teens don't need these issues always addressed with earnestness. They just need representation and presence. And I think this this show gets that so right. By giving Josie Tota not just a great role to work with, but clearly a voice behind the scenes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, she said, there's a quote from her that I got to share. It says, she said, the more we got to talking about the character and her storyline, it became clear to me that if I was going to do the show, I needed to have more stake in it. I was yeah. grateful that they really championed me and allowed me to be a producer on this project because I didn't feel comfortable doing a show that explored my character's gender identity if representation didn't exist. Yeah. Imagine yeah. being that young and that self-assured and just being like, yep, this is what needs to happen here. Yeah. So cool. I mean, jeez. <laughs> I wish I was that confident as I aim towards 40. I was going to say I'm 37 years old and I don't come to my own defense that effectively. Absolutely not. No. (laughs) Okay. What's going to happen in 2021 is we're either going to do more of that or we're going to go to Hollywood. It's one of the two. (laughs) You decide, Brenna. You know, there's a Degrassi Does Hollywood episode we could watch. Okay. So now we're going to transition to our... Talk about what we did over the holiday break. (laughs) 
All right, Brenna. And now it's time for our post-holiday check-in. So tell me, you weren't as ambitious this year, but how did you fare with all the things you wanted to read and watch? I watched nothing, but I have read three things. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we still don't have to talk about The Prom is what I'm hearing. No, you're you're saved by the fact that it's really hard to watch things when you are home with a toddler all the time. And the fact that the other stuff we're watching for the show was like two hours long. Right, right. But what I'm hearing is that I've been saved by the toddler. You have... (laughs) It's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so tell me about the reading stuff then. So uh, as I alluded previously, um, on Christmas Eve, I gave the whole fam jam pajamas and books for Mm -hmm. our Christmas Eve eving. And (laughs) (laughs) by the way, the cat pajamas worked out super well. They were adorable. I love the pictures. (laughs) He was so mad for the rest of the day. He just yeah. went to bed. When we took the pajamas off him, he just went to bed and we didn't see him until the next day. Aww. Yeah. Long-armed cat got sad. He got real sad. Um, but I, I gifted myself as part of that the third Dash and Lily book, Mind the Gap right. Dash and Lily. Okay. Tell me, does it just get worse? I think you would hate it in particular. Right. <laughs> because if the thing that really suspended your willing disbelief was the financial freedom of these young people it doesn't get better it, okay. it doesn't it get better worse. when they're jet setting around the only city more expensive than new york london oh okay. yeah yes it's a little bit so the premise is that um dash has gone to oxford and lily has taken a gap year to expand her dog walking business and okay. to delay having to fulfill the family promise of going to barnard like every other woman in her family has done hmm So instead, Lily tries to get some space. And just as Dash is pretty much having a breakdown because he really hates it at Oxford and he doesn't know what to do with his life, Lily arrives in London because she needs a break from her family. But Dash really needs a break from everything. So all of the sort of they're not communicating properly stuff of the first two books is kind of ramped up, as is the money issues. And I think the book is sort of harmed by the fact that it was written while the show was being made oh so they're starting to cater to the things that they're doing in the show maybe i really felt like dash's character shifts exponentially to be like the actor in the series in the third Mm. book and as we know that wasn't my favorite part of the series so you know i really i enjoyed it it's a perfect christmas read i actually really recommend if you've never read them next christmas plan to get all three of them out of the library and like snuggle up by the fire and read them. They're quick. They'll help you get to your Goodreads total real fast. <laughs> right. Okay. But it was not a wholly satisfying end to the series. Let's put it Okay. That and it is done now. So like this is the end of a trilogy? I believe so. But, you know, the TV show apparently we never know for real, but it seems to have done really well. So they wrote this third one while that was being shot. I think there's every possibility they'll come back for another one. It's not left entirely tied up, but it's sort of got a nice ending right now in the, they're both on the cusp of their future and hopefully they'll do it together, but it's not like a hand fasted bleed on each other kind of ending. Right. So I kind of hope they don't revisit it. I hope they leave their stories open-ended, but I mean, 
I'll definitely read it if they do. So I totally get why they yeah. would. Yeah. <laughs> There's a market. Yeah. And I read Darius the Great is Not Okay. Ooh, what'd you think? Joe, have you read this one? I have not. We've you just been to. recommended it a million times. It's so, so good. So it's a wonderful kind of story. Darius, his mom is Iranian and his dad is not. He calls him the Teutonic ideal of manhood. He's like a very like <laughs> white dude. Okay. And there's an eight year gap between him and his sister. And so his mom's attitude towards her own culture really shifted in that eight years. Okay. So Darius was raised to be an American kid. He didn't learn Farsi. He didn't learn any of the cultural traditions, a bit of food. And there's a lot of stuff about tea in the book, which I really enjoyed. Of course you did. <laughs> but by the time his sister comes along, his mom's feeling this desire to connect back. So his sister learns Farsi, is spoken, like they speak Farsi to his sister at home. And mm -hmm. so there's this real division in this household. But unfortunately for Darius, his dad doesn't really seem to like him very much. Right. And so the only person who he kind of fully relates to in the household, he feels shut out by. There's a mm. whole thing throughout the book. Darius is struggling with... Well, he's not really struggling with it. Darius has depression. What he's struggling with is the way his dad reacts to his oh, depression. Okay. Because his dad also has depression, but a fairly, we think anyway, we learn as the book goes on, maybe not so, but we think right. that he has a fairly uncomplicated history with his own mental illness, that it was resolved pretty easily. And that, that has not been the case for Darius. Mm. And so Darius goes to Iran because his grandfather is dying and he feels deeply disconnected from this culture, but like wants to connect with it. It's a really beautiful story about culture. It's a beautiful mm. story about mental illness. It's a phenomenal story about male friendship. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I highly recommend it. I feel sometimes like you and I are the last two people to read it based on our You're listener right. recommendations. <laughs> but if you haven't picked it up, it's great. And there's a sequel. I just found out today. I just put it on hold at the library. Oh, yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. It was really good. And then the third thing I read was not on my list, but I got it for Christmas. Devin got me the graphic novel adaptation of Jason Reynolds' Long Way Down, which is that story that we talked about, about the kid whose brother is killed and he intends to enact revenge. But right, in the yes. longest elevator ride in the world, he meets all these ghosts who try to show him that maybe the path that they took isn't the path that he should take. Right. And we were still hoping that there's maybe a film adaptation of this by John Legend, right? Yes, that's right. It's it's okay. certainly, as far as we know, still in the works. Mm -hmm. The graphic novel adaptation is my favorite kind uh, of comic okay. in that it is watercolors, all done in watercolors. Ooh, pretty. Yeah, really pretty and really stark, especially like the gunshot scenes in watercolor are pretty mm. striking. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, it was a really good read. It's beautiful art. Highly recommend it. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So I've had some good reading this week, Joe. How about you? Oh, nice. What have okay. you been up to? So as folks will remember, I said that I was going to try to watch some of Pen15, which is the, I believe, Hulu series with two adult women who are playing their grade seven selves. Yes, and they're surrounded right. by actual children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I watched the first episode. And I like it, but it's very awkward cringe comedy. Mm. And it wasn't the right fit for what I was looking for mm. at the time. So I can definitely appreciate the comedic sensibility of the show. And I think it's very well executed. Like it's a period piece because it takes place in the year 2000. Oh, Joe, Jesus Christ. 
I know, me. I know. <laughs> it very well executed, but yeah, just not what I was looking for right now, so... Cringe comedy is hard. Don't you find mm-hmm. you really have to be in the right headspace for it? I really right do. now, yeah. the only comedy I'm interested in is following the saga of Alec Baldwin's wife pretending to be Spanish. That's all I'm interested in right now. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. It is, well... <laughs> it's hilarious! I'm dying! It's been an interesting year for that, and folks, we're going to touch on, unfortunately, a more topical issue pertaining to issues of identity and potential misrepresentation when we talk about twilight next week Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah circling back to lighter fare thank you so pen 15 good not for me right now i did do a little bit of reading i'm not as fast as you so i have begun two books but i have not finished either one of them tell me one of them is one that i didn't talk about which is mexican gothic by sylvia moreno garcia and i'm reading that for my book club with the other podcast this is a young adult novel slash gothic horror it's kind of like new adult to be honest because she's The main character is a society woman who's like 19 in Mexico City and her father, to kind of get her away from maybe marrying a wrong suitor, sends her to go and check on her cousin who is living in a small town with a rich, mysterious man. The cousin has gotten married and then basically fallen by the wayside for about six months, which is unlike her. But they get a letter from her, which seems to be written under duress that things are not okay. So this main character has to go and check on her. And the house is shrouded in mist. It's at the top of a hill. It's fallen into decay. All of the family members are being super dodgy. Like, they're not allowed to speak at meals. She's not allowed to talk to her cousin except, like, under specific conditions. So it's very mysterious, and it's quite fantastic. I'm really, really enjoying it. Cool. It sounds just very different and kind of new, hey? Yeah, I mean, if you read Gothic ghost stories or romances even this is going to press all of your buttons but Mm. the fact that it's taking place in mexico is like what's really capturing people's attention because it's proving that it isn't some boring victorian piece it's like oh this can be adapted to other cultures the author is mexican canadian so Mm. hey canadian represent it's a really easy read and it's gripping and it's spooky and fun cool i'm excited yeah And then I did start Slay by Brittany Morris, as I promised to do in (laughs) the last minisode. And this is the book about the female gamer. And it is a little bit different than I thought. I thought that she was younger. Uh, Mm -hmm. It turns out that the main character is actually on the cusp of going to university. So she's in her final year of high school. The thing that I didn't anticipate was how much of a celebration of Black identity this book is. The main character is Black and she works on a video game. It turns out she actually developed the game. Like she is a coder of this virtual reality game that has thousands of players worldwide. And she can't tell her family about it because they diminish video games. She can't tell her boyfriend because he thinks that video games are a tool that white culture uses to put down black people like by distraction. So she's got something that she's super proud of and it's really a celebration of black culture but she also can't tell anybody about it and I think there's this fascinating not disconnect but like the way that 
marginalized people feel like they can't celebrate the things that they've accomplished because it just gets either appropriated by mm. dominant culture or even like within members of their own self-identified groups they're told like oh you shouldn't be spending your time in this like her family is really excited because she's going to college mm -hmm. and she's like i've literally created something that's changing the world and she can't talk to them about it god that sounds yeah. really good it's really good i'm only about 70 pages into it but mm -hmm. it's such an easy read it's really compelling and also the game that she has created it's called slay which is the title of the book as well mm -hmm. honestly the game sounds freaking amazing like i'm, I I'm envisioning a, a <laughs> film adaptation and i'm just like oh my gosh the possibilities would be fantastic i hate that because you can't actually play the game it's not fair mm -hmm. <laughs> and the other fun thing is like ernest klein gets name dropped in it but i love that this book is almost antithetical to ernest klein and ready player one because amazing. this game actually sounds good and not <laughs> crappy nostalgia oh my god joe you went there amazing yeah and folks <laughs> you know at some point i am gonna force brenda to do ready player one and it's gonna be awful but we're gonna get so much mileage out of it ah all my nerdy nostalgia buttons were really ticked by the book but i never mm -hmm. ventured into the movie because i thought it might be a bridge too far uh it is and <laughs> honestly the further i get away from the book the more i absolutely hate it interesting okay okay mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so folks at this point we would love to hear your thoughts on any of the things that we've talked about or tell us what you binge watched or read over the holiday break in fact, this might be a good time to tell folks, Joe, mm -hmm. we have our own Twitter account now. You can do that on yes. the internet. <laughs> yeah, so folks, obviously, we're still going to keep an eye out on the hashtag HKHSPod. But we thought, since we're starting that book club, we wanted to make it easier for people to connect with mm -hmm. us. So I have created a Twitter handle. It is going to be mostly managed by me, but I'm mm -hmm. hoping that Brenna is going to pop in there every once in a while or that she'll tag it. But if you want to give us a follow, if you're on Twitter, it is at HKHSPod. And of course, anything longer, you can send to hkhspod at gmail.com. As Joe says, we will keep our eye on the hashtag hkhspod. But let's say, Joe, that yelling mm -hmm. at the show account was not enough and someone really wanted to yell at you personally. <laughs> Where would they go to do that? They would do that at B stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's gray with an A. And I bet you're going to want to yell at us next week. Oh boy, we are kicking off our full-length episode with a bang, Brenna, because Ugh. we are going to cover Twilight. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. In fact, we're actually about to record it right now. Yeah, we Super really are. excited. Yeah. I was going to try to keep up like a whole ruse, but now we're about to record the episode. It's real, real long, everybody. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> so until next time, or right now, depending on where you are in space and time. I'll mm -hmm. see you on the page. <laughs> and I will see you on the screen. Happy New Year!